But I know so many photographers with very expensive gear that make very little money because they think the gear comes first. And that's where, and you can relate this to any business. That's where the debt comes from. Oh, we need this. We need a brand new car with a lease or whatever it is. And they strap themselves to begin with financially. And now they have to take on clients they don't want or work when they don't want. And the business becomes a job as opposed to you controlling the business in your life. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an exceptionally awesome guest to share with you today. I can't wait for you to hear his stories, his experience, and his wisdom. Vincent Puglisi is first and foremost a husband to his wife, Elizabeth, and proud dad of their three boys, Andrew, Nolan, and Dylan. Vincent has been a professional photographer for more than 23 years and has photographed just about every assignment imaginable. He's photographed three United States presidents, the Dalai Lama, Muhammad Ali's 70th birthday party, Super Bowls, the World Series, the NHL Finals, the Kentucky Derby, and even WrestleMania. In 2018, Vincent's first book, Freelance to Freedom, was published by Morgan James Publishing. It is the story of how he and his wife went from low-paying jobs and debilitating debt to a life of financial and time freedom doing work they love, and it is a guide for anyone to do the same. Vincent and Elizabeth, who live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, homeschooled their three boys, and he now spends his time running two businesses, Total Life Freedom, helping entrepreneurs build their businesses to create a life of time, money, and location freedom, and the Business of Photography Academy, a community for photographers to master the business side of the photo world. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So this is going to be an awesome discussion. I've been waiting to have this for a long time. And when we connected, a little backstory, personally in Philadelphia last year and hit it off right away. And I knew I had to have you on the show to talk about your journey and drop some pearls of wisdom for everybody in terms of how you've made this transformation. So what I want to do is I want to start in the beginning because there's a part of your story that I think is powerful and I want to share is that there was a period in your in your life where you were not the success that you are today, that you were inundated in debt and things were going very poorly. So take us back to the early years and what was going on there before this big transformation happened for you? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's almost a tale of two worlds in my life. Um, I was a slacker. I was, you know, this is for all the slackers out there that are struggling. They're not sure what they're doing. That was me. There was no like instant success school. I was terrible in school. Um, I never got it. I never felt like I, I belonged there. I felt like there was always something different that I would, should be doing as opposed to just following somebody else's directions. I always kind of knew I had to do my own thing, but I had no idea how to do that when I was 16 and 17 years old to the point where when all my friends were going away to college, I was really just like, I, I wasn't concerned with it. I knew there was something else. And a friend of mine said to me, he said, what are you going to do when, when it's done? And I said, I'll figure something out. 
because they were all going to, you know, I was grew up in Long Island, New York, and they were going to Ivy League schools. And I had, so I found out the day before graduation that I was even going to graduate with a 1.9 GPA. I was terrible. So I knew that there was something different. But the problem is I did that something different too long for a couple of years, just floundering. And I dropped out of community college four or five times, different majors like criminal justice, ironically, because I had gotten arrested for stealing because I was working at a convenience store. I was overcharging customers. I had no morals. I had no moral concept at that point to the point where I got arrested for, for stealing. And then I went back to the same convenience store, did the same thing. And then I woke up at 22 years old as all my friends were graduating college and I had dropped out four or five times. I woke up in the dead sweat because I had a nightmare that I got caught stealing by one of the customers at the store. And she, I still remember her face pointing at me saying, I got you. And I woke up and I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like what happened? And I remember I went downstairs and I sat there and I was in misery because I was like, I'm failing. I failed at everything. And my dad came downstairs. And if you could imagine my history, we didn't get along well at all. And I just told him, I said, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And real simply, two o'clock in the morning, he got a glass of water and he said, well, you like traveling. You like taking pictures. You like sports. Why don't you become a photographer? And for the first time in my life, I was like, well, I can, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try something cool. I knew I was going to fail. At least I thought I was going to fail because I had failed at everything so far. But I said to myself, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm actually going to do this. I went out and bought a camera the next day. I signed up once again for another major at school and I started there. That's how my photography career started. How old were you at that time when your dad just casually you know, said, oh, you should be a photographer? I was 22. Okay. So whereas all your friends now have just kind of started graduating college, you had been bumming around in a convenience store, not really living to your potential. And now you had this glimpse of maybe something you could be. And at what point did that start becoming really real for you, this dream of being a photographer? Kind of immediately because it was the first time that I put my effort into something. And I kind of felt like I got a, a, a reprieve because what I also noticed is my friends that were coming out of school they kind of had these expectations. They were, they were becoming accountants or they were going to certain professions. I had nothing to lose. And this was a real big part for me. Having nothing to lose allowed me to just go after what I wanted to do, which that was my dream was to be a sports photographer, to be on the field. Like instead of sitting on the couch watching it on TV, I had this dream. Like, can I actually be on the sidelines? Can I actually be there? So I said, you know, if I had a good degree, I'd be like, I can't go do this for free for a year because I would give up you know, that promising career is whatever, but I had no promising career. So I was basically got, got a blank check and said, basically do what you want to do, but you got to work really hard to get there. So I got, so that, that's, that was my mindset when it started. It was kind of a very like freeing thing for me. It's interesting too, because if you think about it, that's actually a fair analogy for a lot of people who contemplate going into business for themselves and ultimately don't. That if we strip away everything, all of the real world pressures, all of the expectations. And we just ask that question, what do I love to do? So many people can identify what that is and say what they're passionate about, but then won't take that next step and turn it into a career. But you did. I was fortunate because you know, I didn't have a wife and kids at that point to have to support, right? It's like, I could, and this is what we do now. It's kind of like, well, I can't do that now because of this and that. And I don't think it matters. I think I could have done that now if I, I could do it right now. We did it ourselves. We've had this photography career for 20-something years. We had a business for 14 years. But I basically came to the conclusion about three years ago, like I don't really want to shoot weddings anymore. Three or four years ago, I just basically had the, one of those moments. And Elizabeth said to me, oh, what are we going to do? 
if we do that. Because it was, you know, six figures. It was a great business, but it was still at that point. But I basically said to her, you know, I, I started doing coaching for other photographers. I'm like, I really love doing that. So if I build that on the side, just like we did in the past, we get that up to a certain point where then we could just leave that business behind if we want to. So I think you can consistently reinvent yourself. It doesn't matter if you're 22 or 62. I truly believe that. So, and I, and I want to spend certainly some more time talking about what you're doing now and, and how that's going to add value to people listening to this. But I'm curious as to how you got from essentially going out and getting your first camera to being this internationally renowned photographer who is hanging out with the Dalai Lama and taking his pictures and at WrestleMania and doing all these things. How did you get from, okay, I'm going to give this a shot to becoming that photographer? What was that process like? It was grunt work. It's the answer nobody wants to hear. It was buying $5 tickets, the cheapest ticket possible to a Mets game in New York and sneaking down to the front row and learning the patterns of the security guards. So I knew when they sat down, that literally had a pattern where I would be at the top of the concourse and I'd follow them down in between innings. And halfway down, I would sit in the seat and they would go all the way to the field and they would look around. And then the, the, as the inning started, they walked back up. And as soon as they got past me, I walked down to the front row. So every game, after a while, I got to the front row by about the second or third inning. And what I would do is I'd figure out what the photographers were and I would position myself right by the photo booth. And the entire, for eight innings, I would ask them questions because they were right in front of me. They were on the field. So I'd say, what kind of film do you use? What kind of camera? I bugged the crap out of everybody. But I did this on my own dime, with my own money, with my own time after working because I knew this is what I had to do. So I had a job during the day and I would do that in the evening. So it was a lot of grunt work. It was a lot of relationships. It was a lot of asking for jobs that I didn't get until I finally got an unpaid internship that started for me. So you got this unpaid internship. What were you doing there? I was Bruce Bennett Studios out of New York. It actually wasn't far from my house. And I was, I was a kind of a, a grunt guy for um, the guy that was the team photographers for the New York Rangers and the New York Islanders. It was my dream job, but I was the low man on the totem pole. So I just basically filed slides and I took orders and I did whatever. And I kept asking them if I could shoot a game. And they said, eventually, 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 because people kind of were photographers and they did work in the studio, in the office. And then eventually, nine months later, I got my first game that I got to shoot, Madison Square Garden. You know, it was Mario Lemieux versus Marc Messier. It's like my dream. This is my dream job. And I literally have a press pass around my neck. I wasn't getting paid yet, but I knew that was the, that was the hard part. Getting paid, we'd figure it out. Money was never a huge deal for me, but I needed to do what I wanted to do. And I knew at that point, there's no way I'm stopping now. So you're doing your dream and that that's, I can imagine as a sports fan, we, we talked a bit before recording this and, and I know hockey's a, a, something you're really into. So that must have been out of this world incredible to do that. But something else from your bio that struck me is that you, know, you and your wife still have this pile of debilitating debt. And so... Talk to us about that. So you're doing what you love, but you're still not financially fulfilled. Yeah, well, at that point, we, I hadn't even met my wife yet. That was, okay. that was a little early. So really quick, I, I got an internship at Newsday in New York, and then I started making some money, and I freelanced. And then I went back to school in Ohio, Ohio University, for journalism. That's where I met Elizabeth. And we both got hired at the Evansville Courier and Press in Evansville, Indiana. And these was great photo paper. So we got hired together. It was a coup coming out of college. And, but we did the American thing. As soon as we got our full-time jobs, we, we got car payments, we had student loans, we bought a house, we had a mortgage. All of a sudden, I'm financially strapped and it's not as much fun as it was. And what happened was we kept, we kept doing really well with our job. 
we both became you know international award-winning photographers. I had won international sports photographer of the year. We both got flown to Washington, D.C. for the award ceremony. But Elizabeth got pregnant with our first son, Andrew. And we, I came back and essentially they, I had my review. This is supposed to be the review where you get your money now because we've done everything. And, and they said, when you have a kid, we'll help you out. Well, I win all these awards, everything that they told me. And then I got into the office and they praised me for all of my work. And they told me, but we can only give you a 3% raise. And I'm making $32,000 a year with a baby on the way. My wife wants to stay home with her kid. And I'm, I'm at a crossroads. I'm like, what, what, do we, what do we do? And I went home and I called my dad again to see if I could do some work for him. And he turned me down. It's like even my dad's turning me down now. But he said something that changed my life. And this is what I try to teach in myself now is he said, I've been trying to tell you this for years, but you didn't listen to me. I hope you, I hope you listen now. He said, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. And I was so desperate. I was like, okay, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're, you're a great photographer now. You worked really hard to get here, but you are settling for $32,000 a year and benefits and security. And he said, but you can go out there and you could shoot weddings. You could shoot commercial work corporate, sports, anything you want to do. And you can create your own pay rate and you can have off when you want. And you're sitting here choosing security. That's my dad telling me that. My mom wouldn't have given me that same advice. So we basically decided right then we need to start a business. And I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. This is not you know, in my blood, not something that I ever wanted to do. But I knew if we were going to have the life that we wanted, instead of looking out into the newsroom and seeing people 65 years old, and they've been complaining. You know, I've seen these people that are just complaining and they're, they're upset with their bosses and they're upset with the way they're being treated. I realized we needed to be in control of our own destiny. So at that point, we decided we're going to start a business. And that's where the financial part started. And so when you, when you decided to do that, was this a burn the sails kind of thing, uh, burn the ships? Or, or did you guys you know, do stuff still part-time freelancing and whatnot as you got your side hustle off the ground? Yeah, I was not confident enough to go quit my job. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew we had the skills to do it. Like my dad said, like, you have skills, but you're not using it correctly. I knew I needed to learn the business side. So I went to Barnes & Noble and I, I just read business books. You know, QBQ and all these different books. You know, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad type, type of books that I, I could learn about business. Dan Miller. And so we started the business. And what we decided to do was this. We decided Elizabeth was going to stay home with, with Andrew. And I was going to stay in my job. Now I'm making $32,000 a year supporting family of three now. And so what we said was we needed to get rid of this debt. So what we're going to do is, and this was my idea, and it was self-mutilating, but it was like, what we're going to do is every dime we make from the business, we're going to put towards the debt. And there's no exceptions to that. And the reason was, at this, anybody could follow this, it, it helped us because it made us really focused on building the business. Because if we use the business money for vacations or a nicer car, there would have been no momentum. But we knew if, if we make $10,000 this year from, from business, that's how slowly we're going to pay off the debt. But if I can make $70,000, we're going to pay it off that much quicker. So we went after it. And three and a half years later, we had paid off everything, including our house, and then quit the job and then went on to the life that we can control our, our life every day and our, and, and our time. I love that. And it's, you know, there's, there's always these two sides to that, right? Or these two, you know, the, the people who just say, you know, just go for it. And then there's the other people who say, oh, have a more uh, measured approach. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me that you were able to still 
build this business, get yourself out of debt, and then gracefully transition out of your job. I imagine that that was much less stressful than you know, just obviously burning the sales with three kids. Yeah, and, and and you know at that point we had two we had two kids at that point, but and also this, remember this is two thousand seven two thousand eight. This is right before the collapse. So I had this feeling because you see everything going bonkers with real estate. And I remember thinking something's going to go wrong eventually, just like right now. It's ten years since the last one. Something's going to happen, and I want to be financially prepared for it. So if anybody's listening right now, it's like as opposed to taking on more debt. The the thing was the more we got rid of it, the the freer we felt. So we kept paying it down, paying it down. And literally, we paid off our house the month before everything collapsed in 2008. And we had our following year booked already. We were the only ones that weren't stressed out. We just weren't stressed. We had no debt and we had, we had bookings for the next year. It allowed, what it allowed us to do was increase our prices because not everybody was struggling. And our prices went up. We went to a higher demographic in terms of our, our business and our rates and our clientele. And so many other people went out of business. And we, when everything settled a year and a half later, we were at the top of the field. And that's what did it for us because we were prepared for it. I love that. And so you've got that preparation piece. But there's something else you said in there that's interesting because I think a lot of people, particularly business owners, when they're starting a new venture, they think about taking on debt as just this natural part of the process. You're going to start a business. You know, whether or not, you know, you need a brick and mortar facility or or you're actually going to invest in technology or what have you, people just assume to start a business, you need to bring a whole lot of debt to the equation. It takes money to make money. What's your thoughts on that? We're very cautious on that. We used our old cameras. Like we, we, we teach photographers this, right? In the Business of Photography Academy. And I, get, I get that question all the time. Should I buy new gear? And then I'll ask them what kind of money they're making. And I'll ask them what kind of, what, how much money their clients are paying them. And I'll say, I'll be honest with you, when you hear the numbers and they're low, I said, your client doesn't deserve you to buy a new camera right now. They're, yeah, their pixels are going to be better. The colors are going to pop a little more. But they're not paying you that rate yet. You need to do with what you have right now. And as your work gets better and your relationships get better, you will have the income now to then reinvest in your cameras and into your whatever it is that you invest in, and it gets better from there. But I know so many photographers with very expensive gear that make very little money because they think the gear comes first. And that's where... And you can relate this to any business. That's where the debt comes from. Oh, we need this. We need a brand new car with a lease or whatever it is. And they strap themselves to begin with financially. And now they have to take on clients they don't want or work when they don't want. And the business becomes a job as opposed to you controlling the business in your life. Makes a lot of sense. And and I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this entity you've created, which is really awesome. Your, Your tribe your mastermind, which is... And we're going to talk about the book too, but talk to us about your total life freedom endeavor. Yeah, the, the name came about... I started... A, I actually ran a couple of masterminds for a guy named Larry Hagner in the Good Dad Project. And I loved it. I just loved the idea of when the bullets are flying, having to be able to solve people's problems. I just... I, I get really engaged and energized by that. That's why we eventually left the photography world because I loved coaching the photographers more than I eventually wanted to shoot the wedding. I remember being at a wedding where I was coaching a DJ on his business. We're back behind the scenes eating dinner and I'm helping him with his business because he had all these problems. And then the music starts and we got to go out and shoot. I remember thinking, I want to be back here doing that. So that's when I knew the transition was going to go from the photography business to something else because I've been doing it that long. What, the way I explain it, I bring great, generous entrepreneurs together. That is what we are. This is not about me. 
This is about the people that we can bring together to create a life of freedom. And it's business, it's financial, it's family, you know, it's health, it's all those things, but it's centered around if you can run a great business and you can control your money and you can control your time, it makes you a better husband or wife, it makes you a better parent, it makes you better with your health because you're exercising more, you're eating better, you are not as stressed out. So this is not just, we're very focused on business, but it's business with a purpose so you can have the life that you want. I love that. So how do people find out about that? Oh, it's real simple. Totallifefreedom.com is the website. Um, I keep things every, very simple in my life. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of social media handles. That's where I spend my time. That's the community that I go into. And then when I'm not doing that or business of photography, I'm with my family and friends. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Talk about your book that came out last year, which was very well received, Freelance to Freedom. So what, as you're going through your journey, what was the impetus for you to want to write that book? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, we, we went to this point where once we had quit our jobs, we built our business up, we moved from Evansville to Pittsburgh, we had this life of freedom. We called it the beautiful day rule. If there's a beautiful day, we can take off. So when we're with the kids, you know, we can put our work down. We wanted just to be able to be in control of our life. And we got to do that for four or five years. And we had so many people asking us, how do you, you get to do this? All these other photographers and artists I know are struggling and you guys aren't. And it wasn't about wealth. This is never about as much money as you can make. It's about living the life that we want. And so I had all these ideas for a book. So for two years, I wrote them down, but I always just talked about it. And a lot of people I know just talk about the book. That was me. And I never sat down and had the guts to start writing it. And we went on this month-long vacation to Texas. And my wife saw it in my eyes. I, was, I just had this angst. I wasn't as relaxed as I should be. And she said to me, she goes, okay, I'm taking the boys to the beach. I want you to go to the coffee shop and start writing the book. She goes, I'm tired of you talking about it. And that was the kick in the butt that I needed. Like, okay, I must, have been talk- I, I must be talking a lot, but not doing it. And that was the day that I started writing the book. So take us through what people are going to get out of reading your book. Yeah, the first half is our story. The first half is all the struggles, all the mistakes we made in terms of going from this, in terms of you know, really being lost as a teenager and then finding something that I love doing and then realizing just because I love doing it doesn't mean I'm going to have the life that I want otherwise. Like I love the work that I did, but they didn't pay me very much money. And I couldn't take the vacations that I wanted. And when they needed me to come in on the weekends, I, I'd have to. Like if I wanted to shoot weddings on Saturdays, I needed their approval. So I didn't want anybody's approval anymore. I wanted to be in control of my, my destiny, our destiny. So that's, it's the journey from you know, all the struggles all the way to basically paying off all the debt, quitting our jobs, living the life of freedom, how you can do that. And then the second half is for anybody how they can do it. So there's just kind of a roadmap of what we went through, the five different phases that you will go through and going through this, you know, escaping the seeds of discontent, which is the beginning where so many people don't like their job, they're stressed out, but they don't know what to do. All the way through coming up with your idea, starting something, and then optimizing that business, 
and then creating freedom from that. And then from there, as you keep optimizing, creating multiple streams of income to where basically every day is Independence Day. I love that. I, every day is Independence Day. So take us through, we don't have time to go through all, all five of your tenants in that second half of the book, but hit on some key points for people uh, that wherever they are in this journey that they can utilize today to, to start accelerating their growth. You know, one of them that really helped us, and there's a whole lot of little ones. There's like three or four page just ideas in there. They're not long chapters, but one of them is the golden day rule. This is something that we came up with. We just kind of made it up because what we realized was we were afraid to raise our rates. Now, if there's any freelancers out there, they know there's like, they know they probably could be making more, but they're afraid to do it. So they stick with the rate that they get or what anybody else offers. So what we did is that I think you could do this in any business because we teach this. But within our business, we knew certain dates were very desirable for people to hire us. You know, mid-June, October, with the wedding world in particular, we knew we'd get multiple inquiries for those days where we might not get that in February. So we were afraid to raise our rates. That's just who we were, right? We're cautious. We said, okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we pick one day in June, June 22nd, for instance, that's, we know we're going to get 20 inquiries for that date. Instead of just booking it to book it, why don't we set it at the rate that we think we could be paid or should be paid? So we would raise our rates for that day. And then we, as the year started, and then we would see what would happen. And what happened was we wound up booking it at the price that we wanted. And we realized immediately that we we're undervaluing ourselves. So we started doing a second golden day and then a third and picking more dates. And that's how we got our prices just to continually go up. Now, the thing you learn with that is if you're really good and you're actually de- delivering that service, then you will get those rates. If you don't get those rates and you put your rates up and you don't book them, but you book the lower rates, you know that your service one way or the other needs to be improved. That's where, whether it's communication with your clients, the quality of your work, how quickly you respond, whatever it is, you need to improve before you can get to that rate. So that really taught us a lot in terms of raising our rates without really ever getting stressed out about it. Really cool concept with that golden day. Awesome. And uh, give us another one. Give us another uh, you know, magic tip that, that people can implement here. The, the main thing for us was really getting our money under control. This was the one for us where when at the very beginning of it, we had no idea even to balance the money that we had coming in. How much do we really need to quit our jobs? So we, a lot of people come to us like, well, I make 120 grand, so I need to make 120 grand to quit. And that's like the biggest mistake people can make. Because what happens is people inflate their lifestyles often when they have a full-time job and they spend the money they have coming in. So what I do is I run down with them. This is what I do in my coaching is, what is your fruit? And the fruit is basically your, I won't do it in order, but your utilities, your house, your residence, your food, which is the F, and then transportation. So those, that's the fruit right there. When you can list that out, how much do you spend a month in food? How much do you spend a month in utilities and insurance and you as utilities and then taxes? Write them all out and then a little bit extra for just fun. And what we would do is every time I'd coach people on this, the number was always half of what they thought they needed. Hmm. And they're always like, well, where's the rest of the money go? And I go, well, that's exactly your problem. So if you're making 120 grand, but you only need 60 to live, but you're kind of just blowing another 40 or 60 grand without realizing, and this is what a lot of people do and they don't even know they do it. If you only need 60 grand to live instead of 120, it's a lot easier to start a business and get to that level at 60 grand than it is to get to 120 grand. What that does, it gives you momentum. Because if you go, I've already made 20 on the side, working nights and weekends, it'll be really easy to make 60 or beyond if this is what I did every day. 
And that's an immediate change for everybody when they think about it. Interesting. I, I know that a lot of people, of course, like they, they see it as this one-to-one, you know, you, you earned X over here and you need to earn at least that much, you know, but you're saying it's not, which is really great. It's, it's honestly almost every time and I, and I get the smile, I get the smirk on my face because almost every single time I'm like, no, I need this amount. Do you really need that? And if it's not something you need, you can bring it down to this level for a, short, for a period of time while you build it up because I'm telling you, if you do this right, you will double and triple and quadruple that in two years and then you'll have whatever you want. Outstanding. Vince, we're, we're close on time, but I, I wanted to take an opportunity for you to share any really key moments or experiences that you gained because you traveled the whole world as a photographer. You interacted with some amazing people. What did you learn in your travels? I learned that people are different everywhere and do not believe that my worldview is the way everything needs to be. And that was really interesting to me because I grew up in New York and everybody, in kind of, not everybody, but you know, when you grew up in New York, that's the center of the world. And you know, I remember when I moved away, everybody's like, why would you leave here? Everything's here. Why would you go somewhere else? And I just loved meeting different people and being in different cultures around different people. And so I think just really taking a perspective of learning what other people have gone through really helps. Like with my sports career, it's helped me. The fact that I photographed you know, every team in almost every city where I always have a tie-in with people in different cities, it really kind of humanizes the process and as opposed to it being a transaction. When I meet people from Texas or Detroit or Southern California, I have some type of a story of somebody that I met there or something, event that I covered there that really ties people in. They go, they go oh, I watched that or I was there. And it really brings the relationship closer together. So the more that you can understand and appreciate and uh, blend in with what other people are going through, the more relatable you, be in, you will be in your business. I really think that's phenomenal advice. And, and I wanted to ask, I'd be re- remiss if I didn't ask, any crazy stories you know, from, from your time doing this? Anything that sticks out in particular? <laughs> in my career, I wound up getting a, a gig for the World Wrestling Federation back in the late 90s, back in the heyday of the Attitude Era, if anybody's a wrestling fan. And so they, they, they hired me, and all of a sudden, I'm traveling the country going to these different venues with this group of photographers that I've never met before. And the first day, they have me in Rockford, Illinois. I know, I know nobody, but there's this guy named Goldust. His name's Dustin Runnell. They're doing a photo shoot with him. And he starts barking out order, orders to me, but he's not my boss, but he's this big guy that's yelling at me and I don't know anybody, so I'm going to follow his directions. So I wound up taking the gold reflector that he told me to get and I'm moving it for the picture and he's kind of directing me, which is really weird. And then he ends the shoot and he goes to catering to go eat. Well, Rich Friedis you know, has a Polaroid picture who's the photographer. He goes, he'll bring this, to, bring this to Goldust and see what he thinks. See what you know, he thinks about the picture. So I bring him the picture and he looks at it and he looks at me, he looks at it again. He growls and he crumbles it up and he throws it in my face. And he goes, that looks like bleep. Like, I don't want to curse for your audience. He just curses at me. And he goes, get that out of here. So I go back and I tell them. They go, I'll just leave him alone. He's crazy. Just, just avoid him if you can. So my first match for the WWF, I've got my headset on because you got to listen to the TV people so you don't get blown up by pyro. And the pyro's exploding all over the arena. And we're backstage getting ready to go out. And as soon as we're about to go out, I get a big slap on the back of my shoulder. I turn around as this guy, six foot five, all in outfit, makeup, and it's gold dust. And he's looking right down at me. And I look up at him and he says, so I, he looks right at me and he says, do you work here full time? And I was like, um, I'm on contract. I'm trying to get away with it. I'm trying to get, not, not get hurt by this guy. So I'm on contract. I'm not full time. And he looked at me dead in the eye and he goes, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. 
And I'm like, oh my God, what, what is going on? So Tom looks at me and he goes, you just, just shake it off. Let's go. This is, this is the business. I'm frightened out of my mind. So we go to ringside. I'm up against the ring photographing. He's the fourth match of the ring. He's versus opponent. And I'm so scared. Then I'm thinking, oh, I'm okay because I'm on TV. He can't really do anything to me. And then I realized, oh my God, they use photographers and other people as props in the show sometimes. And then it, you know, I start sweating where I'm like, oh, he could throw me in the ring and he could beat me up and it's going to look like I'm getting beaten up and I'm, you know, they think I'm pretending, but I'm not pretending. He's really going to hurt me. So I'm just frightened. So he comes in the ring and he brushes by me and he, he gets his opponent in a headlock and he's looking right at me. Like he's growling at me. And I'm like, oh my, like really just sweating like crazy. Well, it turns out that he wins the match. He walks right past me. He doesn't do anything. Doesn't hurt me. And I'm relieved. I go home to New York. I call my boss and I say what happened. And so he winds up calling the head of WWF, Vince McMahon, and letting him know what happened. So I go to Austin, Texas the next week, and I'm trying to avoid him. And there he is in the ring and in front of everybody, all the wrestlers as they're practicing beforehand. He goes, you cost me $10,000. And I'm like, for what? He goes, Vince McMahon, find me for messing with you. And then he came over to me. He goes, I'm not going to forget this. This isn't over. And I'm like, oh. So the entire time that I worked there, he always found a way to make me uncomfortable or to kind of give me a little threat. And then I wound up leaving because I had a full-time job now with the, in Evansville, the newspaper. I got the, so I had to leave there, but they gave me one last assignment to go photograph a documentary project for three days in New York, Madison Square Garden, Meadowlands, and then I think it was uh, Long Island. And so I'm doing this three-day behind-the-scenes tour. And the last day, all the photographers get together and they're doing like a little thing for me as a, as a goodbye. We start telling all our prank stories, all the things that we did to each other over, over those couple of years. And then Rich Frieda tells the best prank story he ever did which was the story about Goldust and me and all these things that he told Goldust to say and told, they told him to do. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open and everybody's just laughing. And at the end of the story, I'm like, Rich, that was a fantastic story and a great prank. The only problem is you guys never told me it was a prank. And they were like, what? They thought they told me like a couple of days later, they never told me that it was a prank. So the whole time I was in fear for my life. So we still joke about that. That is so wild. And what a great lesson too. You know, one, how key communication obviously is, but your entire perspective on those two years shifted as soon as you knew that that was a prank and that the six foot five uh, wrestler was never going to actually kill you. But that's wild. I would have enjoyed my time so much more <laughs> and I might not have quit. But I was like, I can't, this guy's going to kill me eventually. That is so wild. Well, Vince, I, I absolutely loved our discussion today. We are at time. As you know, I ask everybody who comes on my show, a single question. You've shared so much good wisdom with us today, but my question to you is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation together? There's so many different ones I'd, I'd love to say. I keep going back to a very simple one. And when I talk to people, so many people are so, they're struggling with overwhelm. There's so many things to do, especially this day and age with our phones and computers and all these different you know, social media platforms. Everybody's just overwhelmed. And what I used to be that way too, I still get that way sometimes, very often. And I, and I have one phrase that I tell myself whenever I go through that. And I say, be better than yesterday. I don't need to worry about the next three weeks. I don't need to worry about what's going to happen next year. I need to worry about you know, all these things that I will worry about. If I'm just better than yesterday, if I just do one thing better and keep improving that, even with my mistakes, everything's going to keep getting better. And it allows me to forget about the future as much. It allows me to forget about the past as much and just focus on today. That's the best thing that I could I that I do for myself that I could, think I could help others with. Love that. And uh, Vincent, tell us again where we can find you online. Yeah, just at our website, totallifefreedom.com. Um, 
send me a note, send me an email. My email's in there. I, I love getting just personal emails. That's how I love to interact. So please, if anybody this resonates with you, want to just send me a personal email and connect. I, I, I'd love that. Outstanding. Uh, Vince, I loved our discussion today and what a, what a fun way to end with that wild story about, about that wrestler. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was really great having you. Thank you so much. I totally appreciate it. You're awesome. Absolutely. Appreciate that. And, and I want to thank each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 